Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Ephesians 3. We are reading the prayer of the Apostle Paul for the church in Ephesus and all saints around the world, even today, from verses 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. And Father, we do ask that you would enlighten our hearts this morning as we read the very words that you have revealed, that your spirit speaks even today. Lord, we confess our dependence and our need to be assured of your great love in all the seasons of our lives. And so we ask that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. If you have a Bible available, we are in Psalm 130, continuing our series through the Psalms of Ascent. These 15 hymns collected together for Israel, traveling songs that they journeyed with on the way to Jerusalem for the three annual feast and then on the way home. We find ourselves in Psalm 130 today, a psalm where we call out to God out of the depths. But it was during that awful social experiment known as middle school that my English teacher introduced me to what has become one of my favorite novels in all of literature. It's William Golding's Lord of the Flies. Undoubtedly, many of you have read it. You're familiar with the story of these British schoolboys. But what can seem like a very simple written work actually becomes more complex as you peel back the layers and look at the depth of it. These schoolboys deserted, marooned on, a, on an island with no one else and Golding takes that opportunity with that very small society, using them as a microcosm of humanity, and explores the idea of human evil and corruption. The boys are caught up in the idea that there's a mystical beast on the island that's responsible for evil, and he dwells somewhere there. In chapter 5, they hold a meeting, a convention of sorts, where they discuss the beast. Various theories are thrown around, and one boys suggest in the midst of that discussion that perhaps the beast is only the boys themselves. His theory was quickly dismissed and they moved on back to the idea of the beast either being the pigs on the island or the dead paratrooper up on the mountain. But then in chapter 8, this boy who'd made the suggestion, Simon was his name, he finds himself in a glade. And in that glade, the boys had slaughtered a pig there and had something of a ritual. And they then took the head of the pig and put it on a pike. Simon comes into the glade, and he's by himself. He's alone. And the head of the pig, of course, at this point is covered in flies. 
Golding then presents something of a hallucination, a vision that Simon has as he's entranced by the head of this pig covered in flies, and the pig begins to speak to him. Listen to what the pig says. There isn't anyone to help you, only me, and I'm the beast. Fancy thinking the beast was something you could hunt and kill. But you knew, didn't you? I'm part of you. Close, close, close. I'm the reason why it's no go. Why things are the way they are. And this is Golding's point. That the beast is real and the beast exists. And it roams the island, though, in a very different form than anyone thought. That the beast lies in these boys. That the beast is us. And we've seen through these Psalms of Ascent that there is something essential for us to grasp about the opponents and adversaries that we encounter in the external world. If you look back at Psalm 120 or 124 or even 129, there is corruption outside that afflicts the church. We also have seen in these Psalms that that corruption infiltrates the church itself that there's hypocrisy and deceit, and there are those who are untrue in our midst. And so there's trouble even inside the church. But that doesn't go to the end of it. Psalm 130, here God doesn't let us off the hook for sin to simply be something external to us. But rather, we see something of what Golding affirms in his short novel, that God confronts us personally here, We learn the same lesson that we, too, are the problem. That sin and corruption and evil divide straight down our own hearts. The psalm captures this in the first verse. As the people learn through this hymn to cry out, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. The depths are a metaphor in the ancient Near Eastern world. They were used to speak of the sea, and the sea was known as the place of chaos and disorder, evil and sin and death. And so whenever you spoke of the depths, you were speaking of descending down into the heart of the sea, which was known as a horrible thing, the end of life. And so the psalmist here speaks of the depths, of calling out to God from these depths into which he has sunk. And he's been sinking down because of the weight of his own rebellion against God. Turning against God, he finds himself falling into chaos and disorder and separation from God. These depths are the world in which we live. We too sink into the depths. We sink into the depths in our addictions and also in our self-righteousness. We sink to the depths in our lust and also in our anger. We sink to the depths in our greed, in our insecurities, our vanities, and also our love for lesser things than God. That's what the depths are composed of. That's what they're made of as to why we sink into them. This is where we live. We live in the danger of sinking into the depths, and we live in the experience of sinking into the depths. We're pulled under by the bottomless waters of our sin. We have that experience, and we live with that threat. And the question that our psalm brings to us this morning is, what do we do with that threat of chaos and sin? 
What do we do with that disorder and evil that remains within us? The Bible affirms that that's true of each of us, that there is remaining corruption. But what are we going to then turn and do? In verses 1 and 2, we see the answer. We see that we're to call on God for help in the midst of the depths. In the midst of our sin, the midst of our corruption, the midst of our evil, there's the simple answer that we are to cry out to God. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. But why? Why can we call out to God when it is the same we who've turned against God? Why is that? Why can we go to this God who we've betrayed? The answer follows in verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. And this is the critical turn in the psalm as to why we can actually go to God from the depths of our own experience. When we are caught up in a trap of our own making, the evil within us drawing us into things that displease God. Why we can go to him, why we can turn to him, because with God there is forgiveness. He's not a God who marks iniquities. He's not a God who keeps the score against you. But rather he's a forgiving and a loving God who graciously welcomes you to come to him. You see, we don't cry out from the depths and somehow convince God by our prayer of repentance to receive us back. But rather we can say that prayer of repentance because God is forgiving. That's the reason we come to him in confession. That's the reason we go to him constantly. Because this is the type of God he is. He's gracious and loving. As the psalm will say later on, he's full of steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. That this is your God and he welcomes you to come. And that's why that rebels can go back to him again and again to confess their sins. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 prays for the church and he's teaching us to pray. And what he prays is that we would have strength from God in his spirit to comprehend and to understand the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of God that's been given in Jesus. He, of course, says that that love surpasses all knowledge and understanding, but he's welcoming you into a deeper and deeper appreciation. And this is what is so important for us to grasp, that no matter the depths that we sink to, the love of God is deeper still, that it runs deeper than you can imagine. It will outlast your sin. It is stronger, it's deeper, it's more profound, it's more powerful. That when God in Jesus Christ comes into the world and dies on the cross and rises from the dead, he tramples down your sin. He defeats it. He's crushed it. That the curse of sin has been exhausted in the death of the one righteous man. And now we stand before God and he is the one who stands ready to free us and to forgive us. That's the truth of the gospel. But with God, there is forgiveness. But so often, you and I myself are slow to take up God on this. And the very practical question that plagued me throughout this week as I meditated on this text is, why is that? Why are we so slow at times when we are trapped in the depths 
Why are we slow to go to this God and to cry out to him? And in working with myself and also with many people over the last 15 years, I would share a few observations with you about that tardiness, about that slowness that we sometimes exhibit. And the first one is that sometimes we operate with distorted views of God. That is that verse 3 actually captures what we believe. If you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? That's not the theology of the Bible. But for many who inhabit the pews of the church, it's still what we're tempted to think. That God does mark iniquities. That I stand before God because of my own goodness and because of my own attainments. And this is what we're tempted to think. And that is a distorted view, of course, that will make us slow to go to God and cry out to him because we really don't think we have much to cry out to him about. It's one way it gets messed up. Now, a second way is that we know the grace of God, but yet we're filled with pride. And we don't like to admit the depth of our wrong. We don't want to study that. We don't want that to be on display in front of other people. And so in our pride, we resist the grace of God, and we pretend that the water really isn't that deep around us. We think it's shallow. It's also self-deception. And this is where we convince ourselves that the problems are not deep and profound, and that light is, that dark is not really that dark, and that the light is really not that much lighter than our present circumstances, that things aren't that bad. This is how we convince ourselves and deal with darkness, and it makes us slow. There's also laziness, that we just linger in the depths, and we linger there because we don't exactly want to change. We don't know what change would look like, and perhaps we don't know what it would require of us, so we decide to hang out there. And then there's also shame, and that is that in the depths, we experience the tremendous weight of our failures, but what we fail to do is then cry out to God. And it is under the weight of those failures that we become paralyzed, and we simply sit there, filled with our guilt, filled with our shame, paralyzed by the wrong. All these things, distorted views of God, pride, self-deception, laziness, shame, they make us slow to go to God and say the simple prayer, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Make us slow to say the simple words. And what God does in the face of those things is he argues with us. He argues with us that with him there is forgiveness. And so he says to those who have a distorted understanding of himself that there is forgiveness with God. He says to the proud, he says to the self-deceived, he says to the lazy, he says to the ashamed that there is forgiveness with God. Steadfast love and a plentiful redemption. That's his word of promise. That's his argument back. This is what he says. This grace is sufficient to draw us out. It reaches down into the depths, goes deeper than we can even sink, and rescues us in Jesus Christ and in his righteousness. And for those of us who've had that experience, who know what it is to fail, who know what it is to fall on our face, and not just an experience we've had once, but yet over and over again, and have had to cry out to this God, something happens. 
It takes over the life of the people of God. Something happens. Our lives begin to take a certain shape. And that's one reason that we have this psalm and this collection for the people of God. But what does it look like? What does that life look like? What shape does it take when we know what it is to cry out from the depths to God and be forgiven by him? Two things that the psalm explores. First, we walk in fear. We walk in the fear of God. Verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Many people find this absolutely perplexing. How in the world do we go from the comforting statement of forgiveness to the discomforting statement of fear? But this is the logic of God. That in forgiveness and in grace and love and mercy, we are delivered into the fear of God. And that's because this fear is not a terror. But rather, the term, the concept of fear in the Old Testament is not this terrorized despair, but rather it's reverence, it's awe, it's respect. That on the other side of seeing God's grace and mercy, we are welcomed into the grandeur and the splendor of God who he is as creator and who he is as redeemer, and reconciled to him, we then walk in the fear of God, ever afresh, knowing that he's good and he's true. This is what it looks like to walk in the fear of God. John Newton, in his hymn, Amazing Grace, captured this in poetic line, perhaps better than we can say it. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." This is straight out of Psalm 130, appealing to us that the grace of God delivers us from our sins and the grace of God then delivers us into the proper fear of God, respect and awe and wonder. This is what it looks like. We walk in fear. Now, the second piece to this, though, is we also wait in hope. If you follow in verses 5 through 8, the psalm continues, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. The psalm then takes a shift. After taking us through what it is to be forgiven by God and to be translated into the fear of God because of that grace and forgiveness, we then turn and pivot to this future orientation that we wait on God and we're hoping in God and we're looking forward to something that is yet to come. Because with this God, there is steadfast love and there is plentiful redemption. And that is not only experienced today. It is full and it is satisfying today and it's good in the present forgiveness of our sins. But there is something that God holds out for us in Jesus that is yet to come. And this psalmist looks at this off into the future, looking at this redemption that was yet to come, where he speaks of it in the final verse, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. In verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he speaks of being a watchman. This was common in the ancient world, where watchmen were set upon the walls, and they would wait upon the walls each night, begging for the dawn to come so they could be relieved of their duty. 
But of course, they were looking for enemies on the horizon. Was anyone going to attack the city? But here it's used in a positive way of a watchman being set for the coming day of God. Because it was at dawn when the judge would come and sit in the gate and distribute justice. Where salvation would be brought to those who had been oppressed and that then the wicked would be punished. This was how the ancient courts worked. It was at dawn that justice was administered. And so all this is turned into the psalm with a longing hope for dawn. That the coming of God, the great day of justice, of salvation, in which God rescued his people and he brings an end to the pollution of the creation and he destroys sin and death itself. That is what the psalmist tells us is our horizon. That's what's out in front of us. And for those who have been forgiven, who know then the fear of God, God begins to train us in waiting on him that that horizon becomes most important, hoping for that day that is yet to come. We have the down payment of it in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and we're guaranteed that just as surely as he rose from the dead, so he will return, and he will raise our bodies as well and all creation and make it new and free it from sin. Several years ago, I learned a legal term that I was unfamiliar with. It was called a quit-claim deed. It was through some legal interactions of a friend, and a quit-claim deed I quickly learned was when one person who has an interest in a property files a quit-claim deed and renounces their interest in that property, and so it turns it over to another person. Pretty simple transaction that can take place legally in our court system. File a quit-claim deed, and you renounce your interest. Friends, this is exactly what we must do. We have to file our quitclaim deed. That is for a full and meaningful and satisfying life on this side of the story. That you have to file that. You have to stop looking for that full, meaningful, satisfying life on this side of the story. When sin is still present and the depths are still here. There is still chaos and disorder despite everything Jesus has done. And so that full, meaningful, satisfying life will always be evasive. But if you put your claim on the other side of the return of Jesus, where it is a real world filled with physical things and God dwelling with us, where he wipes away all the tears from our eyes, that's the claim that you want to have. That's where your hopes are supposed to be set. And that's where Psalm 130 takes us. That in the forgiveness that we experience from God, we are welcomed into the fear, the awe, and the respect of God. And we're welcomed into this hope to wait patiently. And that hope is not well, just well-wishing. It's not sentimental. This hope is based in a promise. The promise established in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's why we're sure. That's why we're confident. We know that our God is full of mercy With him, there is forgiveness. And he will wipe out all the wrongs. He will do that for you today. And he'll do it for you on a future day. That with him is steadfast love and plentiful redemption. And so let's go to him in prayer. And Father, it is from the depths of our own faults and our own failures, our sins and our errors, 
that we cry out to you. But yet we're reminded this morning, in the midst of these depths, that your love runs deeper still. That in Jesus Christ, you have loved us and you have promised rescue. That you do not mark iniquities. And so move us. Turn us that we can turn. May we not be slow to do so. But may we come to you quickly, knowing there's abundant grace and pardon with you. And set our hopes on the great day to come when you will redeem us, your church and your people and your good creation from all the burdens of sin. Set our hopes on that. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.